0: Throughout human history, strength, success, and education prospered. But in a sign of the times, today, our most coveted trait is not productivity or innovation, but being funny. Presidential candidates have to prepare funny zingers for debates, Super Bowl commercials compete to be the most outrageous, people get their news from comedy shows, and everyone is a comedian on Twitter. My name is Michael Gortzman, and I'm the director of thought leadership at Ivy. And at this Ivy Ideas Night, I had the privilege of sitting down with best-selling author and longest-running Jeopardy! champion, Ken Jennings. In our conversation, we explored the comedic landscape and the ways in which humor has injected itself into our culture. It was an ideas night that was as humorous as it was illuminating, and I hope that you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Everyone good tonight? Great to be here. Great to be here from New York City. My New York City skin couldn't handle the San Francisco sun yesterday, so... I'm a little bit tomato this evening, but I'm um, still very happy to be here and, and very happy to be here with you, Ken, so thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So, let's start just by how we got here today. Let's, let's start with Jeopardy. How, what was that experience like? How did you get there? What was it like afterwards? And then, what got us to where we are today um, with writing Planet Funny?
1: Jeopardy was a surreal experience. I mean, I really recommend it. Don't get me wrong. Like, if you can arrange to win 74 times on a game show, you should totally do it. Um, I was always a fan of the show, Like, even as a little kid. Uh, I grew up overseas. We lived in South Korea when I was a kid. And it was great, but if there was one downside, it was that uh, there was only one English language TV channel. It was like whatever the army decided to show, Armed Forces TV, that's what me and all my friends had to watch because it was literally nothing else on, we watched the exact same shows at the exact same time every day. And by the grace of God, or you know, General MacArthur or whatever, like every day at five o'clock after school, the uh, army put on Jeopardy. So me and all my friends had to watch Jeopardy like after school enforced. And we were all just like super Jeopardy stands, like in in fourth grade, you know? Like we'd be on the playground the next day talking about the previous day's match. (laughs) uh, Very hard daily double, but she still should have been more, you know? Uh, (laughs) Like we were pros. And so it was always my dream to be on the show, like even from fourth grade on. And so just to be on the show was a huge uh, privilege. And then to win was a surprise and a joy. But then to keep winning for six months was very weird and kind of awkward in some ways. Um, you have to come up with 74 of those little stories to tell <laughs> Alex. <laughs> you know, the little interview part, you fast forward on DVR because it's so awful. Like, There's no episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm that is as cringy as <laughs> like any single Jeopardy interview. And, and also just the logistics of being on a game show for six months. Like They do five in a day, which I think a lot of people don't know. So at the end of the show, you know, Trebek runs off stage, the winner runs off stage, you know, you put on new blazer and tie or whatever. <laughs> Separate dressing rooms, mind you. But then as soon as you can get back out there, just like minutes later, it's a, it'll be the next show and Trebek will be like, on yesterday's show. But it wasn't yesterday. It was like five minutes ago, Alex. So like really long days. But I would end up flying down to LA for um, 48 hours, winning 10 shows as it turned out. And then flying home and then having to, my boss would cover for me at work. But I really would, you know, you'd fly down secretly. I couldn't tell anybody because the shows weren't gonna air for months. So I'd fly down, I'd win some insane amount of money. I'd fly back to, fly back home, have to go to work the next day, pretend I cared. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) So it was a crazy six months. One thing it let me do was to like take a hiatus from my job. I was a computer programmer and not that great at it. And I'd been an English major in school and really wanted to write or teach or something. So when I got a book deal, I took a hiatus from my job and got to do that, and this is now, it's been over, it's been 14 years, oh my God. That's crazy. I saw, I saw online this year at the National Spelling Bee, one of the Spelling Bee kids, his little story was that I was born during Ken Jennings' run on Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, screw you. Oh Sc- screw you, Arjun or <laughs> No, it's, he's right. It's been 14 years. And this is now my 12th book. But I did write it like a series of kids' books, so that really pads your stats. I love
0: those spelling bees. I, I watch them religiously. If they, if they had like a fantasy sports of spelling bees, I would pick my winners all the time, also. So we're going to take a deep dive into the book and comedy and how it's injected into our culture. But the first thing I want to talk about is that. You have a good three or four pages in the book of things that you find funny for no reason. It's just a long list. Can you just
1: share some of the things that you find funny for no reason and kind of what that means to you in terms of that? Well, I don't know if I can do it off the top of my head. It's a a very rare thing in uh, publishing. It's a pagination joke where I just, I talk about how, you know, today jokes are much harder to explain than they've ever been in the past. You know, for most of human history, jokes had very simple mechanics. And even if somebody didn't get it, you could be like, no, no, it's a pun. Or she thought that he was actually the other guy. You know, you can kind of explain what the joke is. And now this, the modern comic sensibility is very nebulous. You know, you're laughing at something, but just because it's weird, like you don't even know why you're laughing. So I have like a list of things I think are funny, and it's, there's just a few of them at the bottom of the page. And then you turn the page, and it's like a full double-page <laughs> spread of like just more random just, crap just I think is funny. Going, keeps um, going. I don't even know, like uh, cranberry bogs. I think are funny. <laughs> Sumo loincloths. Guam. I think Guam is funny. I don't really know why. Like, I think I say Crispix is the funniest cereal to me. And I don't even know if I could defend that. Like, I don't know what's funny about Crispix. Maybe because it's a hexagon? And it's funnier than Chex. (laughs) I think it's funnier than Chex. It's way funnier than Chex. But again, I can't defend any of these choices. Like, if someone was like, Ken, Crispix is not funny, I would be like, you're probably right. It's It's incredibly subjective now, this kind of nebulous sense of humor. And it almost feels like mass hypnosis when something strange appears on adult swim or some funnier die video and i'm laughing at this thing i can't even understand what it is i'm almost just laughing that it exists you know there's a lot of that. So there are three theories of what makes something funny, and you talk
0: about that in the book. So maybe we could talk about that a little bit, what those three theories are. And you use a really great example, actually, of a video about a rabbit, about Kermit the oh, rabbit. Right. So maybe you can kind of explain the video and, and how each theory falls into what you know one would believe as to why that's funny. It's, it's, that a, works.
1: it's a pretty famous viral video that you guys may have seen of this kind of southern mom and her little baby daughter like releasing a rabbit they've nursed back to health, back into the wild. Have you seen this? So they're like, Kermit's gotta go back to his mommy, sweetie. Um, And so they they let this bunny hop away, and they're like, look, he's gonna go to his mommy. And the rabbit like hops across this field between two suburban houses, and immediately this hawk just swoops down and carries it away, like like out of nowhere. And the dad's holding the camera, and he just starts laughing. (laughs) Dad of the year. Uh, you all laughed too, by the way. <laughs> like <if laughs> it, you cannot watch it and not laugh. Like even now knowing what the punchline is, you should look up the video of Kermit because it's so great. Um, I laugh every time I see it. So, but why am I laughing at this awful, awful thing? Right? Like I have kids. Like my daughter was traumatized when our golden retriever died, and she like left little trinkets out at a shrine she built in the backyard. And like, why am I laughing at this poor little girl? The historical theories of comedy go back thousands of years. The ancient Greeks, so like Aristotle and Plato, they believed in the superiority theory of comedy. Like you only laugh because you feel scorn or ridicule towards something else. Like all, all laughter is essentially making fun of something, putting something down. So in this case, I guess I'm, uh, I'm laughing at Kermit for his misfortune, <laughs> or I'm like laughing at the little girl like, ha ha, your adamant died. <laughs> and the other, uh, the second theory, uh, often associated with people like Freud, is the relief theory. Like we laugh about topics that are kind of taboo or problematic in some way, and it kind of expresses our discomfort about those topics. And you can see what's going on there. Like that, that's why it's easy, lots of jokes about Things like sexuality, scatology, or or like touchy subjects like race and gender, you know, because these are things we kind of feel like a little bit edgy about, and that's why we laugh. so in that case, I guess I'd be laughing at, you know, death, you know, the ultimate taboo subject, you know, we just watched a rabbit die, and I'm expressing my relief that it wasn't me, I guess, and and letting off a little steam. Uh, The third theory, which is more modern, uh, a lot of philosophers like Kant and Bergson have, have boosted this theory, is incongruity. Two things that don't seem to go together and yet they do. Like I've seen a monkey, I've seen roller skates, but a monkey on roller skates, like that's funny, you know, that's comedy. Because you, you don't see you know you're not expecting to see them combined. And I guess in that case it would be, you know, I'm you're expecting a very solemn kind of warm sentimental video of this little girl letting her rabbit go and suddenly there's the thing that doesn't belong a hawk swooping down so none of the theories are all that convincing to me is is one thing I found like it's very hard to to, to think of it's very easy to think of exceptions to all of them I guess Um, which again just points up kind of the mystery of why we laugh and that's
0: and that's the thing right and so we've talked about why we laugh and what makes us laugh but now it's become big business right? right you you had a conversation with the creative director of the marketing agency behind the the Colonel Sanders campaign and what oh, it did yeah. for KFC I'm curious as to what you took from that
1: conversation and and what it means for commercials and, and comedy today I interviewed the guys at a, at a Portland ad agency called Wyden and Kennedy who got their start doing like Nike ads you know just sweaty guys and girls and from you know very motivational you can do it kind of ads but really their thing now is kind of quirky comedy they uh, they pitched bringing back the colonel which KFC did not want to do, much less have like Reba McIntyre and Norm MacDonald play the Colonel, you know. The KFC could not be happier, sales are way, way up. People love weird versions of Colonel Sanders apparently. And they also did that Old Spice campaign, the, the Old Spice guy, I'm on a horse, see? <laughs> So the thing about that, that campaign was a huge game changer for them because Old Spice was in trouble. Like it seemed stodgy and old fashioned. It had old in the name. They were getting killed by Axe, body spray and deodorant. Like they thought Old Spice was done. And so these guys pitched this sort of goofy comedy sketch, like former NFL wide receiver doing this crazy kind of, ooh, like ladies, look at me. And it was huge. Like millions and millions of people watch that video for fun and send it to all their friends. And that's huge for a, a product, uh, you know, any company because they're not paying for that ad time. They didn't have to pay a cent to have tens of millions of people watch that ad. They didn't have to buy airtime. People were doing that for free because they just loved the Old Spice guy. And the rule of thumb used to be don't put comedy in ads because it wouldn't work. Like people would remember the punchline but forget the product. They'd be like, Yeah, he's on a horse, but uh, hair moose, I don't even know. Um, but today it doesn't matter because if ten million people are seeing your ad. If it goes viral, that's still millions more people, and some of them are gonna remember the product. Procter & Gamble told these guys that from now on, Old Spice is not even a deodorant anymore. It's an entertainment brand. It's kinda awful when you think about it. Like, the deodorant could go away tomorrow, but Old Spice would still represent this kind of fun, quirky, comedy sensibility, and the deodorant is just a product now that they use to supplement that idea.
0: And it's so telling. You know, I think about the Super Bowl, And how almost every single commercial during the Super Bowl is this crazy cast and super funny kind of thing that everyone's going to be talking about the next day. Guest stars. Christopher Walken, whatever it might be. When there isn't a funny commercial like horses, right? Like those are very famous commercials. That makes the news. Those are the things that people are writing about because, oh, my goodness, there was a commercial that wasn't funny during the Super Bowl. So is that the new standard? What does this tell us about marketing today? And what does it tell us about what the consumers actually want? Is that what they want?
1: Yeah, um, there's this phenomenon called affect transfer, where if you feel good while watching an ad, you're laughing or enjoying the vibe or whatever, you will chase that feeling the next time you're at the store by buying the product. And that's a very real thing, although it didn't, it didn't exist you know, until the 1960s. Ads were not funny. It's kind of a modern discovery that this now works. But it's true in advertising as in almost any industry. Once somebody is being funny, it creates an arms race where everybody has to be funny. Because once there's a few funny ads, like the ones that aren't, just seems stodgy and old fashioned. Like, skip through these. Like, I'm not gonna laugh at these. Do you remember the Super Bowl ad where, like, the, it's an insurance ad, but it's like a kid who died? Did you guys see this? It was like five years ago. And that's when I fell out a window and died. It's like narrated by a dead kid. And see, it's funny. <laughs> there you go. It's like Kermit. And, and this insurance company thought they were doing a good deed, like a PSA for like, home safety. But, like, all, it was surrounded by, like, wacky Jeff Goldblum ads. And nobody wanted to see this little kid be like, but my mommy and daddy didn't like cover the outlets and now I'm dead. And so like, it was a huge catastrophe, like the marketing guy got fired, like the VP of marketing got fired. Like once somebody is funny, everybody has to be funny. And it's an arms race and you see it everywhere.
0: And you do see it everywhere. When I was on my flight here, the safety video, you know, keep, you know, buckle your safety ball or, or whatever it is, had a dance number and and lights right. and there was pyrotechnics and I'm pretty sure a unicorn flew by on the screen at one point. Um, and then, and, and you mentioned this in the book, you, you see um, churches with funny signs to, to come into the church. Is there a line drawn? Is there, like, is this what we all want? And is there a place where comedy does not belong, maybe? Where maybe the the
1: serious stuff should be serious and the funny stuff should be funny? It's clearly what we all want in that it feels good in the moment. Right. Like, laughter feels great, you know? That's why it evolves, probably, like, as a coping mechanism in a dark world. Um, but in that sense, it's almost like kind of this evolutionary need we have to eat sugar. You know, we, like, we, we love sweet things because we evolved to, like, need those calories or we would, like, not survive the winter. Um, but again, now that sugar is easy to come by and every product is blanketed and high-fructose corn syrup or whatever, we're starting to see some of the side effects of making that the main course and not just like an occasional treat. Um, and I think humor's the same way. You know, Our brains evolved to need these little like, bright moments in a dark world, but once everything becomes funny, once there's a thick layer of jokes and irony blanketing everything, um, we're starting to see some side effects, and I think like one of those side effects might be we're not enjoying it as much. If everything's funny, nothing is essentially. Like we're in a golden age of jokes being everywhere, but nobody like slaps their knee anymore or like holds their belly like old people used to. Like now like we see a joke and we're all like comedy geeks or comedy writers we're all like oh yeah yeah, that one's pretty funny you know we're all like we're all judges all the time of all the jokes and i feel like we're just not taking any pleasure in it
0: well that kind of brings me to what i want to discuss next and that's that everyone has the chance to be a comedian and a critic because of twitter right so everyone can tweet jokes all the time and at the same time that brings on Hypersensitivity and criticism. What does what the Twitter landscape look like today? And what has your experience been with Twitter? Because I think you kind of notoriously are funny on Twitter and, and it, it helped you.
1: Yeah, Twitter is kind of what inspired the book. Like, I was a comedy fan from way back, and the book is like a love letter to. Comedy. I mean, I, I was a class clown as a kid, and I remember in the '80s, like staying up late to watch Letterman and Saturday Night Live and In Living Color, and like all these shows that I knew my like my parents wouldn't get. Like this is cool and young. Like it was almost. I think today it is for a lot of kids. It's it's just like rock music. It's a signifier for or or whatever the music is. It's a signifier for whatever mom and dad don't get. You know, like mom and dad would hate this uh, Kendrick record, so this is my thing or whatever. Um, and comedy functioned the same way. Uh, and I think that's still true, but you know, even though I'm a fan, I'd never like thought about getting up on a stage like you. It scared the hell out of me, like the idea of doing stand up or even the improv classes. No, thank you. But you get on Twitter and you see, it's like this comedy utopia where like famous stand ups and gifted comedy writers are like just kind of quipping and riffing all the time, and like funny civilians are trading jokes with them back. Like it's like a big democracy. And uh, it's really the only thing Twitter's good for. You know, the short character span means jokes work but almost nothing else does. And, um, you know, it's not really good for any kind of serious engagement. But for, for little topical jokes about the day's events, it's great. Uh, and I got very sucked into it, but it's, it's seductive and I don't think it's great. Like, it's really a narcissistic impulse to, for, for me, every time something mildly amusing crosses my mind to be like, oh, you know what I could do is tell like 270,000 people that joke and see what'll happen. I mean, what a weird way to think, you know? And there's a callousness that comes with it too, I think. like, It's almost like my first response to everything is like, can I formulate a joke about this? And it's because, I'm sure comedians think like this, but now that we're all, we're all doing this on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, like, how do I amuse whoever's following right now? We're all thinking like comedians. Like Our first response is like, what's well, a funny spin on this? And not everything in life needs a funny spin. One, one example is like, every time I'm on Twitter and some celebrity dies, it immediately becomes like sentence contest of like death jokes. You know, like a couple weeks, a couple months ago, the guy who found that Ikea died and immediately my Twitter feed was like dozens of people making jokes like, uh, I hope his casket came with an Allen wrench or or whatever. No, you're right. It's it's not unfunny. Like that's a legit joke, but like, but like, do we need to joke there at all? Like, like, the fact that something is funny doesn't necessarily mean, like, now is the time for that joke. So I feel like it's not making me a better person to have that muscle always be like, what's the next joke, Ken?
0: It's probably that instant validation that sure. people are looking for, right? Like, for every like I get, it's, the, it's better than any drink or, you know, anything out there. And I think that's probably what the allure is as well.
1: And another, There's like a dopamine cycle. and I you think can, so. And you can quantify it. You can see exactly how funny your joke was. That got... Uh, 432 likes, like that's twice as funny as the joke that got 208 likes, you know, for a comedy nerd, that's like amazing to see data. Like that's never happened in comedy before. But it's not healthy. No,
0: no. And then, so another platform is is YouTube for comedy, right? And, and I remember the Lazy Sunday SNL video going viral. What I didn't remember about that story is that that went viral two days after the public launch of YouTube. <laughs> right. That's a fact I don't think a lot of us remember. And it received five million views before the network pulled it off off of, of YouTube. But today it's a little bit different, right? People are throwing things on YouTube. Networks want things on YouTube. The pay networks are throwing things for free on
1: YouTube. How has this changed the landscape for everyone? Like, I guess what it does for me is it just creates this idea that there is this huge avalanche of comedy out there, more than I will ever be able to see or listen to or enjoy, you know, like thousands of hours of essentially free comedy sitting on Netflix waiting for me. Like, like in the last couple months alone, like specials by, who has a new special? Um, Tig Notaro, John Mulaney, two by Dave Chappelle, right? The Chris Rock one, Hari Kondabolu, Ali Wong. Like they're all really good standup specials. And there's just hours of them and I'll never get to any of this. And YouTube, like endless and endless jokes. Like while I've been talking here, Twitter has been like, you know, hundreds of jokes could have been scrolling by on my screen. And it just feels like it's too much. Like. I'm never gonna see all this. It, it, it used to be a scarce commodity. Now it's just everywhere, and we produce it too. That's the thing about YouTube and Twitter is right. we're, all, we're all comedians now. Like we, we think about comedy as an art form that we do. We're not just consumers anymore. But I think it kind of makes us more jaded about it.
0: There was a study that you wrote about that 46% of young people have admitted to the fact that they get their news from like SNL or The Daily Show or, or the late night television. Is this a good thing, you know, because it gets young people engaged and actually
1: interested, or is this a bad thing because news is comedy? I mean, I love these news and, you know, comedy news and satire shows. Nobody loves these shows more than it. Stephen Colbert is a genius. Jon Stewart was a genius. Like, I love Sam B. I love John Oliver. Um, these shows are great. Uh, and, I, you know, and I think the argument would be, well, the, you know, that's how you hear about issues. You know, when John Oliver spends 15 minutes doing some deep dive into... Civil asset forfeiture, or the privatization of the prison industry, but he puts in jokes so you are like actually enjoying while you 're learning like that's a good thing, but I think more broadly there's been a lot of research on what it does to people to get their news from comedy shows, and it turns out it is not the same as hearing you know an nPR announcer or Uh, a news anchorman read the news to to hear somebody do jokes about it. For example, people who got their news from The Daily Show during the Jon Stewart era uh, were actually more cynical about politics than those who didn't. And it makes sense, you know, Jon Stewart's always poking fun at, you know, media institutions and uh, other government institutions that, you know, had it coming for sure. But the end result for a lot of viewers was, yeah, he's right, like, this sucks, I'm not voting. Like, it, it actually turned people off and made them engage less. And there was another study where people watched, they showed the Colbert Report to college students. They watched a clip of Stephen Colbert and then they watched a clip of O'Reilly. So like the satire and then the actual blowhard guy. And then they asked them about issues. And it turned out Stephen Colbert was better at convincing the kids of the conservative viewpoint than O'Reilly was. Like even though the kids were, they knew it was satire and they were savvy about it. But later when they were tested, they were like, oh yeah, school vouchers or, or you know whatever. Because apparently getting your news through satire confuses the brain in a way that straight news does not. So, what about so what about sitcoms that address
0: social issues, right? Uh, Blackish talks about race, Fresh off the Boat, you know, addresses issues. What what impact is that having? Is it bridging the gap between different opinions or is it just fueling the fire for people who already think differently?
1: I mean, like it's hard to talk about this now without talking about the cancellation of Roseanne, right? Sure, of course. I mean, that's not a show that would have gotten cancelled just based on the content of the show. Right. But like, you know, if, if there's any show that could bring America together, it would be a reboot of Roseanne that you know, does jokes on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And the show was successful, but I don't feel like it was bringing America together. Like, people were pissed off. And then, you know, obviously, if the star is gonna make super racist jokes on Twitter, that doesn't help. Um, so the, the show did not last. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not convinced that, uh, you know, there's some kind of communal effect. It could happen, right? Like, when we're all laughing at a joke, we're open, we're willing to listen, maybe. Um, you know, maybe comedy does have persuasive abilities that a straight news piece does not. But, um, yeah, so far I haven't seen it bridging ideological divides. So
0: what about when it hits into politics directly? You speak about Bill Clinton, a young Bill Clinton, and how comedy kind of saved his political career in a sense, right? So what happens there, and, and what impact has it had today?
1: So American politics used to have no jokes whatsoever. It's like a strict rule. Like, Abraham Lincoln, funny guy, but like not on the stump, not giving addresses from the White House, because Those were serious times, and he felt like it was not presidential to do his kind of folksy backwoods jokes. And that pretty much held true for the next 100, 120 years. In 1988, Bill Clinton was asked to give the speech nominating Michael Dukakis at the Democratic National Convention, and the speech was a disaster. He kind of droned on for, like, well over, like, 40 minutes, like, longer than he was supposed to go because he's kind of got that Bill Clinton confidence that he, that he thought he could save it and he couldn't save it. Like, it was terrible. The, the people were, like, booing and the networks were cutting away. And so everyone's like, this guy's toast. This guy's political career is over. And the Clinton team kind of panics and they have this idea, what if he goes on Carson? And The Tonight Show's like, no, we don't take politicians. And they're like, well, what if we put him on and he'll just play sax with the band? So it was agreed that he would go on and play saxophone with the band. And... It was a, you know, he totally charmed the socks off uh, Johnny. They did a bit where he came over to the desk and he started to talk, and Carson pulled out a big hourglass and turned it upside down, like, oh, this is the guy that's going to talk for a while. And people just loved it. It made him seem likable and relatable. And he totally recovered from this terrible career-ending gaffe. And within three days, he was, like, again, the big rising Democratic star. And so when he ran for president in 92, it was the same thing. Like... I don't care uh, if it doesn't seem dignified. I'm going to go on Larry King all the time. I'm going to go on Donahue. I'm going to do MTV town halls. I'm going to play the sax on Arsenio's show. And it worked. Like, young people actually voted uh, more than usual. And he won. And people were like, wow, this is the new reality. Like, politicians have to be entertainers, they've got to be out there telling jokes. And that's every election now. You know, every candidate's got to do The Daily Show. Got to do Colbert and Fallon and Kimmel and SNL and yeah, they have to have a solid set at the Correspondence Center, right? They, right, they got to tell jokes like as if they're comedians.
0: President Obama went on uh, between two ferns with Zach Galifianakis to talk about health care. So here's my question for you, and it's a super easy one: Did comedy get President Trump elected?
1: <laughs> so I think yes, and hear me out. Like a lot of people have, a lot of people have complained about this part of the book because. They say, why are you saying Trump is funny? Trump is not funny. He's super unfunny. And I'm like, I know, I get it. Like, I don't think he's funny either. But the thing is, when he was doing these kind of goofy rallies during the campaign, and he's like, some big WrestleMania guy doing his applause lines. We're going to lock her up, and we're going to build a wall. And people were hooting and hollering. and, And he'd like go over and hug the flag. Like, I don't know if you remember this. He's the dumbest thing. But like, they interviewed people leaving these rallies, and they were reacting like they had just seen like, the best comedy set of their lives. Like, they'd be like, oh, man, he says what we're all thinking. He's not afraid to go there. Like, the Daily Show had kind of conditioned a ton of people to get their politics in entertaining ways. And I think they were prone to vote for the guy that was doing the best show out there. And everybody tried to catch up. Like, you remember Hillary dabbing with Ellen, or like, like Marco Rubio, like, he actually Marco Rubio put dick jokes in his stump speech. Like, like, he did like, well, Trump's got the spray tan, and he's got the little hands, and you know what that means, ladies. And I'm like, you poor guy, like, you suck at this. Like, do not even, like, why, why are you even doing this? But, it's again, it's the same thing as the church marquees and the ads. Like, once one guy has broken the glass on the funny, everybody's got to try to do it, or you just look dumb and out of touch. And I honestly think that helps get him elected.
0: So to the other side, then, when people disagree, there's something now called laugh right? And, and it's, you know, writing funny signs at protests. You know, when, when people were protesting, right. someone had a sign that, that you wrote about that said, uh, we brought you hummus, have some respect, or something like that, right? <laughs> like what are, what are the pros and cons of this you know is it that you know it's it's maybe something goes viral or is it is it
1: lightening the mood a little bit too much yeah that's a tricky question i think like, we we're, we're seeing something very new in comedy today like comedy has been satirical like back to the ancient greeks you know like Like, we think the Peloponnesian War is bad, and I'm going to write this sassy play about it, you know, the Aristophanes. But I think comedy is doing this thing today where it's not just against things anymore. Like, it doesn't just poke fun at the bad guy. Like, we're starting to see more comedy that actually, like, advances a positive agenda and advocates for something. Like, I was watching, like, uh, Hari Khandabalu's Indian American comic, and he he just did a documentary about, like, uh, Apu, like, what it's like to have this racist uh, Simpsons, or, you know, Possibly racist Simpsons character. character, kind of define your childhood. And he does an hour of stand up that a lot of it is like very serious issues about race and America and immigration and changing demographics. And, you know, he's getting laughs. It's a very earnest kind of a thing. And uh, this has worked in other places, like uh, Serbia, a Serbian dictator was brought down in part because of because of jokes, like people, it was, it was forbidden to do protests, so people would kinda of do these guerrilla things where they would like, they'd put a picture of Milosevic on the street corner with a sign being, and baseball bats, and a sign being like, hit me, or whatever, and the cops would come, but what could they do, they, they would like arrest the dummy, because you know, you, there's no way for the state to fight back against these kind of mischievous pranks. You know, it's a really kind of fertile area for protest, I think, because it's very hard for the man to put down without looking stupid.
0: Someone who's kind of creating change to, to a level they probably didn't anticipate is John Oliver. Can you
1: talk a bit about the John Oliver effect? Journalists have talked, or you know, social commentators have talked about this John Oliver effect, whereby John Oliver will do, again, like 15 minutes about some serious issue, you know, statehood for Puerto Rico, something that was not on anybody's radar. But he'll do 15 minutes about it, and like, it will actually lead to policy change. And there's been like a half a dozen of these cases. You know, he he talks about how like, bail laws are super unjust, something nobody was thinking about. And like, within the week, uh, de Blasio announced that New York was going to like change some of its you know bail guidelines. There was one about how like some kind of uh, law about chicken farming was like super unfair to small farmers and had basically been written by agribusiness. Like millennials were not like all up in arms about Purdue chicken, but like <laughs> Oliver does fifteen minutes on this, and then like the very next time the House considers this bill, like that that line is mysteriously absent. So we are starting to see real world change because comedy is a persuasive way to frame it. What's in store for the future of comedy? Is it is it going to be oversaturated? Are we there already? Like, where do you see it going? This is a very hard prediction to make in the book because a lot, you know, along with more and more jokes blanketing us every day, the jokes are getting super extreme in, in many ways. Like, there are jokes that come out as faster than ever before. Like, the average sitcom has two to three times the joke density that it did in the 60s. The jokes are like stranger and more sophisticated. Like again, it's these kind of like, why am I laughing at this kind of a joke. You know, you'll watch some 30 minute adult swim special and it's just two guys reenacting the credits to a 70s cop show and you're like, I don't know what's going on here, but I guess this is a comedy channel. Um, so the jokes are getting stranger, harder to pin down, more and more ironic in many cases. There's like a, a distancing and detached effect, like meta comedy, where you're, the, even the people making the jokes are like, I know it's weird, right? So comedy's getting weirder and weirder, and it's, I'm wondering like how long this can continue, because the, the novel, you know, this is all driven by the fact that jokes need novelty. You know, you can't laugh at the th- same thing you laughed about before. You certainly can't laugh at the same joke you've heard a few times. You can't laugh at the same style of joke you know that your parents liked. It's gotta be something new and different and comedy keeps evolving. But it's hard to imagine anything stranger than what we have now. You know, I assume it's gonna keep invading areas of life that were serious, just like the church marquees and the airline videos. We're gonna start seeing funny headstones, I guarantee it, and funny legal decisions and funny legislation and funny instruction manuals. Like, everything that could have a joke is going to have a joke or else we will just be like, eh, this is no fun, why am I even reading this? and I don't, like, I don't like the idea that like, sincerity and earnestness will, be, will seem obsolete. I agree
0: with you. I don't either. But I do want a funny headstone now. So um. <laughs> Yeah, you should pitch him some jokes. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, last one. What are, what are three to five podcasts or books that we should all be looking into, reading, listening to, either for a laugh or to learn something? Oh wow! Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like, how do I feel? So, there's like you you want like comedy recommendations? Your call. What are you what are you listening to right now? What are you reading right now?
1: Um. So it, it doesn't have to be funny. No, and to laugh or learn. To laugh or you're, learn. You're, you're both, aren't you? Come on. <laughs> I do it all. You do it all. I am reading. This is all very specific. Like on the plane here, I was reading the Hollywood trilogy by uh, kind of a forgotten noir author named Don Carpenter. He's a Portland author. He's best known for this kind of noir thing called uh, Hard Rain Falling. But I was reading a trilogy of his Hollywood novels, which are kind of about show business. And they're very funny. And the first one is actually about a pair of comedians. Kind of a Jerry, Martin, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin kind of comedy duo. And kind of their see-me-empty backstage life, which is fantastic. It's not funny, but it's about comedy. So that's one thing I'm reading. Um, you should listen to my podcast, Omnibus, <laughs> which, uh, which I do with a musician named John Roderick. Um, the idea is that we're uh, kind of creating a, a comprehensive uh, record of all human history in case the world ends. Like, we want, we want the people who come after us, who, you know, the, the lizard people or the lava men or whoever, to know about Milli Vanilli and the <laughs> 30 Years War and all this stuff. So that's kind of the conceit of the show. Mm-hmm. Funny TV shows. Ooh. Kimmy Schmidt is back. That's yes. maybe the fastest paced sitcom in history where like every time there's a joke like you hardly even have time to laugh because there's going to be a follow-up joke so y- you almost like can't laugh like you could watch it twice <laughs> and probably not get all the jokes and i love it but i do in the book i do point out that like when something is that kind of baroque and and ornamented like that it becomes less relatable like you're very aware that these are not real people that you, and it's very hard to identify even with a likable character like kimmy because you're so aware of how written it all feels and planet funny huh Planet (laughs) funny is a great. That's only three, but I feel like that's it. No, that's good. And planet
0: funny, guys. Honestly, if you want to laugh and learn, it's a great book. And I know that we're we're you know a society that likes to download and listen to audiobooks or download it for the Kindle and all. But if there is a book that you're going to buy a physical copy of, I really suggest that one uh, this one because there's there's footnotes on the bottom of every page. They're really funny, and I I think it just makes it a better experience. So um, grab one today, get it signed.
1: That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com dream big and stay inspired